Hello. We have a full slate of theater and film in June this week, Carl. So how are you today? I am excellent. We're going to talk about one of my favorite plays because a true genius wrote this play and brought it to our attention many decades ago. That That is what is great about this play that I'm teasing it now, but we're going to talk about it in just a little bit. We'll talk to our guests, Gary F. Bell and Stephen Pyrick from Stray Dog Theater about their show, The Normal Heart. Around minute 27, we'll talk about Jurassic World Dominion. Around minute 40, Hustle on Netflix, the latest from Adam Sandler. And then around minute 46, a live theater update. And then around minute 52, Lynn's going to Guido's. Hello, Miguel. (laughs) We have as our guest today, Gary F. Bell, the artistic director and founder of Stray Dog Theater and his star, Stephen Pyrick of The Normal Heart. And it was written by, hi guys. Hi, how are you? (laughs) For those who do not know, it was written in 1985 about the AIDS crisis at the time. And I was alive when the article started appearing. And it was uh, President Reagan and uh, the blood supply and all these stories, but it trickled out. And I remember reading an article called Patient Zero. And it was truly frightening. So Larry Kramer wrote this play, 1985, on the AIDS crisis from 1981 to 1984. And he starts off angry, then he gets furious, then he gets even more furious. So there's a lot of a frustration about how nobody was reacting to this plague, disease, whatever, because it was hitting a mainly gay population. Now, if you go back to 1985, you will recall that rights were not as liberal as they are today. And therefore many people still lived in the closet and had a, did not want to be outspoken. But then we had, you know, a hundred deaths, then we had thousand deaths and we had, and it just ballooned. So Larry Kramer's uh, play is considered a landmark in theater. It was produced off Broadway at the public by Joe Papp. And it did not get a Broadway run until 2011, but then it won two Tony awards and, and best revi- uh, for acting for uh, Ellen Barkin and uh, John Benjamin Hickey. And then it won best revival play. So why now guys, why in 2022 should people pay attention to this? Well, originally it was supposed to be a show that was going to be produced um, pre-pandemic. So it was back, so we had to move it to now, um, you know, like moving ships in the night. We had to move all of our shows around, but we were happy to do it. First of all, it's June, right? For Pride Month is great. And there's a lot of similarities between all the COVID um, beginnings and how we were unsure what was going on and what was causing it and washing down all of our groceries. And, you know, and same fears were with the, uh, the AIDS pandemic. And uh, fortunately or unfortunately, I was in the midst of both of them. I lived in New York City during 81 to 85 and remembered 
people being concerned about how this was being passed. Um, many waiters lost their jobs because they thought it was maybe communicable or, you know, gay, gay folks were, were in, in struggle with trying to figure out how to, um, you know, move forward. They didn't find that it was passed uh, through blood and sex and, dr and drug use for a long time. Uh, couple of years, which seems like a long time and you're unsure of what's going on. And that's into play too. You know, there, there's, there's just confusion about what's going on. And it's ironic that we have just been through and are kind of still in uh, a plague epidemic of the same kind of similarity of concern and fear and, and worry. But um, I always think it's important to revisit important plays and times in our history. That's what artists do. Um, of course, you know, we do many things that are fun and light and humorous and also musicals, but every every year we have one show at least that has a really important part or point to make about some issue. And I think as artists and as a theater company, it's our obligation to make sure that we're, we're, we're doing that. You know, it's not an easy show to sit through, but that's okay. Not all things in life have to be easy but it is important and there is humor in the show as we saw last night on our opening night through people laughing at spots we never you know, have, have <laughs> had before. So that's, that's nice. And, but I think it's always important to do relevant plays and theater that have important meanings, uh, meanings in, to share. Well, the uh, crowd was very receptive to it and uh, you could have heard a pin drop. It's very powerful. Uh, it's, just uh, it hits you harder because it builds and builds and builds and Stephen has to do the heavy lifting as the activist Ned Weeks so how did you prepare for this uh Stephen because it's an emotionally draining experience I honestly I feel like I've been preparing for this for 10 plus years because I saw the 2011 Broadway revival of the show and what's funny is I saw it because Jim Parsons from the Big Bang Theory was in it. I had no yes. idea what it was about, you know, any of that. Uh, and I was floored that as, you know, then a gay man in my 30s, I did not know this play. I did not know this story. And I felt passionate that the generations of gay men to come also need to know the story. Uh, so... I have really jumped into the depths of the show for years and have read it and studied it. And uh, there's documentaries out there on Larry Kramer. There's documentaries out there actually on Terrence McNally, which also brings Larry Kramer into the picture. There's such a, a wealth of information out there. Uh, uh, John High, who plays Mickey, uh, who is my husband, uh, we've been watching the Andy Warhol documentary to get a good sense of what New York City was in that time frame. Uh, so we've really spent a lot of time looking not just at Larry Kramer, but everything that was going on in that world. I remember one major magazine, and this is back when people read magazines and read newspapers, there was an issue, and I'm not sure if it was time or life or people, but they had all the photos of everybody who died of AIDS that year. It was, was Entertainment very... Weekly. They, oh, did it, okay. they used to do it every year. And it was very powerful. Okay. I knew I had it and I knew it was and just it, impactful. They started in 1990 and they, they called it the Faces of AIDS. And they had, because a lot of people were in the enter entertainment industry. Yeah. And so they had 
they did it for several years. It was always at the end of the year or the beginning of the year, right around that time. And they had pictures and small bios of everybody. And it was Entertainment Weekly. And now, as you mentioned, Lynn, that as a magazine does not exist anymore. Yeah. I wanted to, to piggyback on something that Steve had said about it's important that people know. We actually have a party coming tonight of 21 that a gentleman purchased for his friends. He has older friends and younger friends, and he wanted to be sure that the story is being told over the, uh, the chasm and span of all those ages. And we're going to have a talk back tonight about uh, the show so we can kind of inform some of the younger guys who are coming about what was going on. And the older guys who are coming with them can also help us join in and, and, and share some of the important parts that they may want to know. So that, I think that that's important too. Like people are taking this uh, during Pride as, a, as something to do and to come out and to be sure and, uh, and reflect upon. You know, we have a good time, we party, we have fun during Pride, but it's also important to remember our history. And the, I'm really gr grateful for this gentleman bringing this party and we're all ready to stay up late and have that conversation. So again, that way everyone can be informed about what's happening and, and, and what has happened. Well, now, the, the way people did the blood drives back then, that's why Elizabeth Glazer became such a face of AIDS because she got it through a blood transfusion yeah. before when they just had the, the whole blood pool together. Mm -hmm. And that was a learning lesson. But the government's failure to do anything uh, was a big component here. Yep. And, and I think uh, when I was watching it last night, I thought, oh, so many similarities to COVID. And also just of previous uh, epidemics and, and how- itself. It does indeed come back and haunt us. We have to be very aware of that. And that's another message about the show, right? Right. And then, yeah. And then Sarah Jane Alverson's part as the doctor, she is in a wheelchair from polio. Mm -hmm. And so that speaks back to a previous academic. Now, I know there's there's many advancements now in the HIV and AIDS research, and it's no longer the death sentence that it used to be. But then not just in the United States, but it was a global crisis mm -hmm. and it, it was tremendous in Africa. And I think they've helped uh, educate people. So that's good that you have a component of education in this. And I also think at the time, 1981, the previous game was Stonehenge. That's, I think John refers to that. His character refers to Stonehenge in the in the play and the the gay community at the time was not organized nor what and they all had different opinions i mean you struggle your character steven struggles to uh get everybody on the same page for sure i mean he he starts the show as a fact finder, in my opinion. You know, it he's really trying to get the information and understand what's going on. And Larry strikes it really personal by having him go through the medical exam when he just came to ask questions right at the beginning. Uh, and I think it's a really great way to start the show because the the anger and the passion and the frustration builds from that moment. You know, they're the character of Mickey and Ned who are waiting in the, the lobby of the hospital room are 
kind of joking back and forth about things going on in their life because they're not taking it that heavy yet. It's mm -hmm. just that fact finding. Uh, and then you see over the course of the years that are covered in the play, how all of that steamrolls uh, and nothing is easy. Nothing is easy for the doctors who are researching it. Nothing is easy for the those in the gay community who are trying to trying to get word out there and trying to save lives. It it's really fascinating having started this research before COVID and revisiting it after the pandemic has mm -hmm. been with us for so long. One of the lines that I say is uh, to the character of Bruce, who is played by Jeff Wright. They say to him, um, of course, you have to tell people how to live. Otherwise, there won't be any people left. Hmm. And it's really a powerful line that resonated with me to today as well. Well, speaking of powerful lines, this play has been around for 37 years. It's done numerous revivals. And there's a famous Ryan Murphy film with Mark Ruffalo. Which version of the play are we seeing at Stray Dog? Are we seeing the original 1985 version? Are we seeing what they made for television? Or which? what are we going to see? It's the original play. And it's the, Excellent. It's exactly what was, you know, was written by Larry. I don't think people have changed it too much because it, it's more of a documentary right. sort of a thing, uh, play, as opposed to an emotion kind of based upon. Um, we, in the opening, we have an opening where we say that everything happened. And that's important to let people know Everything that you're about to see in the play happened. There's, there's no kind of, you know, changing stuff just to make something exciting or new. Um, and that's important to share. And to also comment, um, Lynn, back on what you said about Sarah Jane Allerperson's role of Emma, that's based on the only doctor that would even look or take care of people with HIV and AIDS for a long time, uh, based on her own her own illness made her a proud person to go ahead and be the first person to take this seriously. And to think that a disabled um, uh, woman like this would take her life, uh, would life's work to help this situation is very powerful and um, an important part as well in the show. Uh, you know, Steve and I are great friends from way back. And so working with him on this is uh, very powerful because you have such a connection already. And many of the actors, uh, as you know, from who work with us on this stage, a lot of them. So it's very um, exciting, create, creative to work with people. You already have a real sense of how to make something whole and, and beautiful. You know, David Wasilek and uh, Jeffrey Wright and all those great actors, Stephen Henley. And then we have um, you know, new people as well. Um, Joey Saunders is his name as Felix. Yeah, so, just great, I hadn't great, seen um, him before. Yeah, you know, and, and Mike, Michael Hodges as well, and of course John High. Just really great actors that all the people know around town and can come and support and, and, and see them do these roles of these people who, um, who really truly existed. Did I miss anyone, Stephen? Uh, Jeremy Goldmeyer. Uh, Jeremy oh. Goldmeyer as Hiram, yeah. Yeah, yeah. So, he plays the mayor, uh, Mayor Koch, who has long been <clears throat> he, he plays his assistant, yeah. Yeah. But um, yeah, he's again great actors who we, we've done numerous things with, um, who just are, are shine on their own, and then all together, you get kind of like a star-studded cast of St. Louis in, in the show. So, well, yeah, and Jeffrey Wright's usually in musicals, so it's nice Mike to Hodges see him well. in the yeah. 
yeah, he's usually our choreographer and he's all, it's nice to see them in new, fresh ways, doing right. new interesting things that are very difficult to share and experience. Well, and Lynn, can I just say too, that it was an incredibly unique and special experience to be able to have a director so connected to the material and have the ability to share personal stories from New York from this time that would often just rattle the cast in such profound ways that they could then put back into the material. It, it was, it's really special to have firsthand account of the time frame, the people, the location. Uh, it made for, for a really powerful experience. Yeah, the the one about the funeral home and the yeah. or the lack of a funeral home, let's put it right. like that. It's yeah, very I, powerful. And, I remember uh, when I was in Europe on a tour and we were coming back to the States, uh, most, many of the guys in the cast who were gay back in, in the Europe tour decided to get tested in Europe because they were afraid if they did it in the United States, there was these uh, rumblings of quarantines of putting people like in, you know, in different places and keeping them separate. And, and so that was true. That's mentioned in the play. And, um, you know, I had, I had people I knew that who passed away and died. I was on the way to get my hair cut at my, my hairstylist. And I pulled up and there's ambulances around his, his salon. He had unfortunately committed suicide in his salon because he had HIV and AIDS and his family was not going to take care of him. So, and I was a young man in my twenties. It was just overwhelming to have all these experiences. And then of course, you know, how we view sexuality and sex in our, in our world is always not talked about so much, but when something is affecting you the way that you're intimate with people, it's very, very scary. Because then how do you express your, your, your love for somebody um, sexually um, without you know, being afraid you're going to die or meet somebody? So it creates a whole weird dynamic, especially when, you, you know, when you're young is when you're trying to find your way in life and see how you can um, meld with people. And then in a part of society that already was looked upon as negative, you know, now today things are more positive for gay people, but back then it was a huge, huge shame, even in, in, in New York City. And I remember the clubs and the places we went to all had dark glass on them, you know, had to be all kind of privatized. That's not the way it is anymore. And, there's, and it's, it's important to remember this, what was going on at the time that this was happening. So many different prejudices and uh, against gay people, their lifestyles. So, um, you know, it, it was a lot for me to get over then. And after COVID came, I said, I'm kind of good with pandemics. I've, I've, I've had two that I've been kind of in the middle of. I, I'm okay now. I don't need a third one. <laughs> well, I think it's really important to, uh, uh, to uh, be educated that it's not over because it isn't. A friend of mine works at Doorways. One of my best friends, he works at Doorways. Mm -hmm. And that helps with the HIV community. Mm -hmm. And yeah, so it's still, it's still a part of lives. It's just, we have medical, better medical care. The documentary Fauci delves into this because he got involved in it, Dr. Anthony Fauci uh, at that time. And it talks about him going out and meeting with people because at first they were very hostile to him because the government hadn't done enough. And then he started listening. 
Yeah. And that. So, so I think it is, it's real, any chance that you can have to remind people that this isn't over. Well, that's so true. I mean, they, in a play, one of the characters said, they said, we'll have a vaccine in a few years. Well, there still is no vaccine and the medications are extremely expensive for people. So people who don't have good health care and in other countries in particular that are poor, it's, it's still a struggle because how do you obtain medications that cost five to $6,000 a month? And, uh, you know, we're in a country that hopefully some help can come through Medicare, Medicaid and other insurances, but even still in our country, it's still, still going on. And that was Larry's mission at his last uh, time he produced a show on Broadway, Stephen speak to him standing outside. Oh, yeah, he, yeah that's yeah. interesting. Yeah, when we were walking out of the theater, he was still standing outside of theaters, handing out letters, uh, his please no letter, uh, telling people all of the facts that are still going on. He, he was, till his last day on this earth <laughs> that we lost during the pandemic, uh, which in and of itself had, and I think an effect on all of us, uh, but he was passionate, not just angry, passionate. I, I think they went hand in hand for him and it was evident until his last day on earth. Mm -hmm. That was 2011, right? That yeah, yeah. 2011 yeah. was when when I I saw the show. Uh, and full disclosure, I, I didn't know it was him until I started researching. You know, why why was I handed this letter? What was going on? Who's this man? Yeah, yeah. yeah. And, well, yeah, and I, unfortunately, many of the original cast members have passed away. Brad Davis, who played Ned Weeks, you know this. So it's a passionate play for him. You know, not yeah. only he was dealing with the play about the folks he had in his life when he wrote the play, but many of the men in the show who originally were in the show also then eventually passed from AIDS. One of my wife's best friends uh, was an actor in Chicago and he was preparing to play uh, in this show and it was going to be, um, he was getting assistance from Larry and Larry was a part of his life. And unfortunately, before any of those things had come to pass, he passed of AIDS. Mm -hmm. And this, this story is very common with people that were involved in this early on. It, mm -hmm. it, it, it's a very sad story, but it does, it doesn't, it's not a depressing story. It, it does, it's not, it, it leaves you with hope. Yeah. Because that, that, that is something. That's something that Larry Kramer, he didn't want people to feel depressed when the play was over. He wanted people to be um, activated when he yeah. when they saw the play. It's it's yeah. not it's not just, well, I guess we're resigned to this fate. No, that's not that's not what the play's about. Mm -hmm. It's yeah. remember and let's change things. Right. Yeah, call to action. I read that he handed out when the first when it first was shown uh, on stage. He handed out a dramaturge that explained who these characters were, like they were based. Like the character of Felix, uh, your lover, the New York Times reporter, he was based on a real New York Times reporter. And yeah, that, but, but, so, but you don't want to get sued, Lynn. <laughs> yeah. yeah. Well, especially back then, I remember I was working at the St. Louis Globe Democrat in 84, 85 when this came out, and one of our editors, uh was a really 
well-respected guy, but he was in the closet. He had a room, he had a roommate. You know, he was a bachelor with the roommates. Right. And so that was confirmed, the way the world was. He's a confirmed bachelor, Lynn. Yeah. Yes. Well, that's the way the world was back then. You did not hear of anything. I remember yeah. uh, uh, one of uh, my son's best friend's sister was getting married and the whole family drove to Vermont because that was the only place it was like in 2003, four, where you could get married. Iowa was one of them, too, because I know people from Missouri that went to Iowa. And I said, right. Iowa, why? How, how is Iowa more progressive than Missouri? Well, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> well, we can talk about that. But no, I think it's really important. I think it's very powerful. And I don't want to uh, uh, give the um, opinion mm -hmm. that it's not worth your time, even if you've seen if you've seen the Ryan Murphy adaptation, if you've heard of anything, don't think, well, I've seen that before, because I think this puts a fresh spin on it. Plus, it's St. Louis actors. Then, when you do something alive, it's very different because you're sharing these emotions with people in time and space. Yeah. Movies are fantastic. Don't get me wrong. But, you know, theaters never died because there's nothing like sharing a moment with actors in a space together as human beings experiencing it together. And the threat of something going wrong. Yeah, well, that, that's always true. <laughs> yeah, but their plays are pretty seamless. And uh, I always think you would love, Carl, you would love Justin Bean's sound because he always picks the most perfect music and the transitions build to... Justin um, makes me look good, that's for sure. <laughs> and sound good. Right. Yeah. So the, no, for, for, for such a tiny space, it's really remarkable. And I think right. it's more powerful. The what do they call that? The transitions. Uh, yeah, that's a, that's exactly what it's called. The transition music. It's a, it kind of helps you, you know, flow into the next scene. Yeah. So the show the show is playing now through the 25th of June and uh, they're all at eight o'clock. June 25th is also my birthday and Larry Kramer's birthday on the same day. Just saying. Go ahead. Oh, nice. They're all at they're all at eight o'clock. They're uh, Thursdays through sun Saturdays, but there's going to be a Sunday show on the 19th. Correct. Those of you who cannot go on Thursday, Friday, or Saturday. And go to go to straydogtheater.org. That's theater classy with an R E. <laughs> yeah. Great. Yes. And uh, uh, yeah, and also they have an education component. And you also do a food outreach component and That's you have a lot. So go look at what all they do. And I'm so excited to hear about that talk back. That's a wonderful, wonderful idea. Gary, I'm, I'm glad I'm glad you came on to talk about this. I'm I'm excited for this show. And Stephen, thank you for being on with us today. Thank you so much for having us, y'all. We appreciate it. Bye. Break a leg. Thanks, Break a leg. <laughs> and happy early birthday. Thank you so much. You're welcome. I'll celebrate with Larry. Absolutely. Raise a toast. Yeah. Thank you, guys. Well, the last play they did was Tri Triassic Park, the musical, which was a spin on Jurassic Park in a very comical, off-Broadway musical, goofy way. So yes. now we're transitioning to... Another dinosaur epic, Carl. Okay, so this is the only trilogy that I can remember that in order of quality got better each time. 
I would say it goes three, two, one because, and our buddy Max likes two better than three, but I think the legacy cast brings this up, uh, up a grade. Yes. Well, the first one was trash and the, the second first one's one... garbage. I hate the first one so much. Oh, Bryce Dallas Howard running in heels. At least she has sensible shoes no, on here. The, the, the problem with the children, you didn't oh. care about the children. Now, yeah. I, I did say that the pods, the pods in the first Jurassic World, that is a great, that is the, probably the best scene in there when they're running with the pods. And then the second one was, they introduced something that makes the second one very interesting, but then... The third one just throws that very interesting thing away because uh, I don't know. Well, they uh, introduced the big, bad, evil corporation, Bios. Yeah, well. And Wait, so, but and in so, the books, I don't remember much about two. In the books, uh, Biosyn is like a big deal. And they didn't mention those in the, move, in the uh, original two movies because the third one is not based on a Michael Crichton novel. Right, because Michael Crichton just did the first two, and then he was out. But he was very concerned. One of the reasons he wrote these books was he was very concerned with messing with genetics. And you would think they would learn, but oh no, things go horribly awry again. But what is really head-scratching in this is that the dinosaurs are not the main plot. No, not really. It's the, it's, it's uh poaching actually it's uh locusts uh that are genetically engineered uh, to ruin the ecosystem and yes. cause havoc in the world food chain and i was then, talking i was talking about this today and someone said why don't they just kill all the locusts and th uh, they were genetically made and even when they're on fire they're little fire bombs so i um, it this one it this one is directed by the director of Jurassic World, Colin Trevorrow, uh, rhymes with tomorrow. Everyone thinks it's Trevorrow, but it's Trevorrow. And he comes back from directing Jurassic World after the first, after the second one, Fallen Kingdom, was directed by J.A. Bologna. I'm sure I'm saying that wrong, but he was the one that made it interesting. And then Trevorrow takes the only interesting thing from two about cloning and just throws it the hell away because he doesn't care. Even though he wrote the second one, I, I don't I don't understand. Yes, well, Maisie is the cloned granddaughter of Jurassic Park founder John Hammond, whose daughter, Geraldine Chaplin, yes, uh, had this genetic disease, but they altered the kids' total DNA. So she's okay, but she's living off the grid with Owen Grady, Raptor Whisperer, and Claire Daring, the former manager of the Jurassic World theme park on Island Nublar, which is destroyed because of a volcano. The volcano that was in, that was the plot of two. The moral dilemma of should they save these dinosaurs or not? Because who cares about the dinosaurs and then then uh, it doesn't matter here's well, here's here's what i here's i want to say one positive thing about this movie before we just rip it to shreds i like the fact that claire and owen are together at the beginning of this movie this is the first of the jurassic park movies 
where and, and and all six of them that the characters are together like they they had a relationship and they're together because in fallen kingdom they weren't together they were apart in jurassic park three alan and ellie aren't together and they're still not together in this but we get it we get a sense of uh what's going on but these two are together that is a positive thing the first one in six movies that characters from the previous movie are together that they I still liked. have no chemistry <laughs> sorry <laughs> but they that, still... that, that's not the point i i like that that that's something new and the and i did say you know how i said that the third one is the best one it the only thing that makes up for it is the last third of the movie where plot a and plot b merge even but though that is convoluted mess too because then instead of having two groups of four people you have one group of eight people which well yeah it tries so hard to blend these two storylines together and i think it fails miserably with its multiple screenwriters and i think uh i i'm fine there are, only, the there are only two screenwriters in this I know, but it's, story it's Colin Trevorrow and Emily Carmichael. And Emily Carmichael, uh, she she's uh, she has done a whole bunch of short films, but she also did the Pacific Rim sequel. So that was kind of better than the first one in parts. I did not see either one of those. Oh. Um, so not, the, uh, don't on my recommendation, don't. Well, I will say the supporting characters of the pilot. Uh, played by Dewanda Wise, Kayla, and then the right-hand man of the big, bad, evil corporate Earth guy, uh, Ramsey. Uh, they are very fine. They're fine. They're good. Well, they're, the, they're the little, you know, thread between, because they do surprising things to help, and you don't think they are going to. Well, Dewanda Wise is playing either the Monica Rambo. uh, uh, character from Captain Marvel or the Tignataro character from uh, Army of the Dead that uh, Zack Snyder follow up to Justice League with Dave Batista. It, it, they're, they're the pilot. I, or I guess you're uh, Riz Ahmed in Rogue One. They're the pilot. That's their job and that's what they're doing. And well, so, uh, This thing is so all over the place because we are in the Sierra Nevada mountains. We are in dusty farmland in Texas. We are in Malta, which turns into like a James Bond movie. And then we're in the Dolomite mountains in Italy. We have lakes and snow and mountains and ice and swamps. And we are all over the place. How many times do we have to have the green screen acting of big giant Jurassic teeth, dinosaur teeth, nipping at the running heels of the characters. I mean, this is over and over and over again. Uh, what do you think of uh, Campbell Scott as the very punchable villain? They have decided that they're going to make all corporate villains into the Steve Jobs model uh, and also Elon Musk socially awkward uh very greedy possibly on the spectrum yes um also uh you know super uh genius level uh and then 
I don't know. I just thought it was just very cookie cutter. And B.D. Wong. Uh, He's is been man. he has been in as many of these films as Jeff Goldblum has now, because Jeff Goldblum is in one, two, five and six. And B.D. Wong has was in one, four, five and six. But I, I guess you have to give Jeff Goldblum a little more because he has more lines than B.D. Wong in one movie than all of them. And B.D. Wong looks old and tired and not necessarily wanting to be there. Right. He does. Um, what do you think, think? What do you think about Isabella Sermon? I liked her better than the kids from Jurassic World. Oh, yeah, she's fine. She's fine. Of <laughs> she course, we fine. have to have the rebellious team who's not staying in her lane. Well, she was she was fine in uh, Fallen Kingdom. So I'm I'm glad they brought her back because she was, you know, after that the was, awful Yeah. That after was one, one of the, the awful kids. Yeah. That was one of the only things to me that worked like um they actually com- uh, convey a family. Owen yes. and Claire and her. A very that, weird dysfunctional that, family. Right. But, but they do but yeah, it's it's just weird. And then how many poor Chris Pratt. He just stares out like, you know, it's green screen acting. And how many times can he stop a raptor? I mean, but now we have genetically altered raptors. We have like fancy ones. And then we have dinosaurs with feathers. And then we have new well, that's, kinds that's of because dinosaurs. they know they've learned that these they learned these dinosaurs weren't scales. They were feathers. And so like, oh, well, I guess we better incorporate the latest science that we knew in this. All right, Lynn. The audience that we watched, uh, they were very happy with Jeff Goldblum as Dr. Ian Malcolm. Is he is he elevating this film or does it even matter? I don't think it matters, but his lines are, are pretty funny. But he's I mean, not really Jeff acting. Goldblum, he's not doing anything. Right. His, uh, Jeff Goldblum was being Jeff Goldblum. Right. That character that he plays and his hand mo- movements and everything is very familiar. So I think if you're going to look for nostalgia, you get it with Jeff Goldblum. And then when B.D. Wong shows up, that's a good line. This guy? It's always this guy. Yeah, so that's that's one, because people laugh. But I just thought this was so tired. This was just two hours and 26 minutes. It was. And I mean, just Why? What is the point? I don't appreciate after the pandemic and all that we've gone through. Uh, one more nightmare about back, uh, not dinosaurs in our backyard. I mean, really? We're well, they've been doing be dinosaurs in their backyard since Jurassic Park 2, The Lost World. I know, but still, it's just creepy. And it just makes no sense. And it's so preposterous. And, and there's, it's just, but the fact that it's just a window dressing backdrop to what's going on with the locusts and that whole thing it's a very preachy well they're trying to make it real real world uh because you know spielberg just wanted to make a godzilla movie and he did do that by but by setting it in the real world and doing all of these things the real world problem and threat of not having enough food which is very serious right now uh that that makes it the stakes better but it doesn't because it doesn't matter 
Well, they always have to terrify children in these. That's always one. They always have the poor kids screaming with the locusts in the fields. It's just sad. And then uh, they they just are, and we have to have bigger, bigger call. Uh, like you mentioned, Godzilla. We have to have a Godzilla the biggest dragon ever. Flash. Right. And uh, I just so much of it's in the dark. Yeah. Well, it, let's let's abandon this and the, just like the islands where the dinosaurs from let's abandon this and let's leave them in italy and convince me why i've liked i, I want to say this first of all i have enjoyed adam sandler's more recent films for netflix hubie halloween murder mystery uh the ones that he's been doing i mean i know uncut gems wasn't uh, for netflix but it seems like he's into a groove with this but i had no desire to see an adam sandler basketball movie please convince me otherwise because i hear i am very wrong about this yes he is surprising as is the film uh he plays a nba scout for the philadelphia 76ers this is populated with old and new nba stars I don't know who all of them are, but of course I know who uh, Alan Iverson is, and I know who Charles Barkley is, and I know who Anthony Edwards is. Well, Dr. J's in this, Shaquille O'Neal's in it, uh, Dirk Nowitzki, Doc Rivers. So they are very, very famous. And if you're a fan, uh, I hear there are a lot of 76ers in this. Yes. Yes. And so the the main guy, the the uh, gigantic street baller that they find in Spain is Juancho Herman Gomez. And he plays he plays for the Utah Jazz in real okay. life. And he's the actor here. And so um, Adam Sandler goes around the, he's the scout and he's got to go through Europe looking at all these players and he's eating fast food junk in all these hotels. It, it's a very family friendly. This is like a combination of inspiring sports story that is actually fun because it's very authentic. And then this family story and Queen Latifah plays Adam Sandler's wife. And you would think that that is so odd and doesn't work, but it's actually, they have a very pleasant chemistry together and they have a high school daughter and uh, they were both, uh, the whole thing is that Queen Latifah and Adam Sandler were, were college athletes. Okay. And, uh, or high school athletes. I can't remember, but they're both, they're actually both, but their kid has no athletic uh, ability. And (laughs) Queen Latifah says, not even ping pong. (laughs) (laughs) and so it's funny but it's uh he decides at great personal expense to bring this player from spain over because he is convinced he's the next big thing he's the real deal well his transition into the nba draft does not go smooth so that's the whole basis of the film but this cast is really good robert duvall plays the owner of the sixers okay ben Foster plays his son who hates Adam Sandler. Okay. Heidi Gardner plays his daughter who likes Adam Sandler. Uh Aha. How about that for a family dynamic? Likes 
likes or just no uh, no just respects him as a coach as a respects him as a as a scout okay so i'm not going to go further because i would ruin the plot but sandler's charming he's authentic he really loves basketball you can tell he the way i mean the dialogue and i'm sorry i'm not giving out the screenwriter's name but this works. This is surprising because it's not Adam Sandler being the goofy doofus with the it's voice. A serious. It's a serious thing. LeBron James is a producer on this. It was written by Taylor Materney and Will Fetters. And I don't know if it's Materney or Mattern because it's M-A-T-E-R-N-E and Will Fetters. But there are a lot of uh, non-Happy Madison people that are involved in this. So, And it's it's one of these... Films where Sandler, it's his first dramatic role since Uncut Gems. Right. And he's fine. Now, there are some, there's some humor in it, but mainly well, it's there was humor drama. in Uncut Gems, too. Well, right. But I'm just saying he's really um, I think he's on a roll. He's uh, one of my friends. So I'm on the Tonight Show the other night and she was telling something because I was telling people you'd be surprised how good this movie is. And they go, oh, I hate Adam Sandler. And she saw him being interviewed by Jimmy Fallon. And he's, she said, he's very, he's really matured and he's, you know, this film guy, I saw him on Seth Meyers and it's hilarious. He talked about how after punch drunk love and people thought he was, you know, like a dramatic turn. Right. And he was very proud of that. So he was invited back to his alma mater NYU with Paul Thomas Anderson to talk to a, to a class. So he goes in expecting, you know, to be like, revered because he's taken this dramatic turn and he said all the questions were for pta like boogie nights and how did you do this and how did you and he was just sitting there like am i chopped liver i'm the alumni here you know right. and so i think that's funny and he talks about his daughters having their bat mitzvahs and about how his like his parents probably put some meatballs out in the basement and he goes, this was like an extravaganza. And so, you know, he talks about having daughters and, and all that. So he's matured and he talks about Saturday night live because it's Seth Meyers. So right. he talks and he's got some really funny stories. So of course he was at that same period as David Spade and Chris Farley. Okay. If you, if you recall, but no, I'm, 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 I gave it a solid B. And it's very entertaining, and especially with the NBA finals going on right now. And if people like basketball and it's like a it's like that whole thing, you know, like Rudy, American underdog, Rocky, that kind of that kind of vibe. All right. Well, good. So I you know what? It's on Netflix. I'll I will give it a look. So, Lynn, have you gotten an invitation to Circus Flora yet? I did, and I uh, passed it on to my uh, colleague Chaz Adams. Okay. Because when it, it's open now, right? Press nights Saturday night. My son Charlie's coming in from New York City, and so you know. Um, and you you didn't want to bring him to Circus Flora. <laughs> No, well, no. He's he's got his brother's graduation, his brother Johnny's uh, graduation party. Uh -huh. And so, and then I also have the 
Arts for Life Best Performance Awards Sunday. We award community theater, community musical theater and youth productions. And this is our first time back at a real ceremony since 2019, where we actually played Gloria and the blues, uh, like game six was that night or something. Right. But um, we have had a virtual one. And then last year we didn't have one because there were no productions. So this right. is our first time back. We're giving out awards in 30 categories. And now we have another COVID outbreak. So we are strongly encouraging masks. But uh, this weekend, Carl, among the theater community, there's been several cancellations and postponements of shows. Uh, the cast of the Kirkwood Theater Guild Singing in the Rain has COVID, several of them. Uh, New Line Theater, which has a fabulous urine town. Now, I saw it last weekend. Uh, they canceled this weekend's performance because of a couple people in the cast with COVID. Uh, Kill Bill parody, too, by the Cherokee Street Theater Company has been postponed because of so much COVID in the cast. And they were supposed to open last week. They delayed it to this week. And they just said, we're rescheduling. The people I was supposed to go see Shakespeare in the Park this weekend canceled because they have the Rona. So it is it is a weird theater week here in St. Louis. But the Muni opens on Monday. I know. And I'm excited, even though it's the same exact show. The same from last show year. that we actually we didn't get to see it. Remember, well, it got, I saw it. it got saw. right. You went the next night, but opening night got rained out last time. So they only got three performances in of Chicago. So here's another week of it. But it was the best produced show of the season last year. And it even won. though it was three, it was three, three performances, but still the best show because it's a, it's a great show. People love Chicago. And it was fabulous. And it won, it won uh, seven of our theater circle awards. Best musical, best director, best choreography, best costumes, best. So it was a lot, but it's it's really slick. So the whole entire cast is coming back, which is very unusual. And the whole entire production team is back. Dennis Jones is a genius. You might recall his his uh, 42nd Street choreography. Remember a couple of years ago when they had the stairs and they all came down in the gold? Yes. Mm -hmm. Yeah, that's the director. So well, you know this is good. Well, Friday night is Pride Night at Bush Stadium. And next Wednesday, the reason I went and saw Lightyear last week is because this the preview that you're going to see of Lightyear is the same night as Star Wars night at the ball yard. I will be there on Wednesday night to get my shirt. What they did was they had a white shirt with that logo. I'm sorry, a white jersey with that logo and a black jersey with that logo. This year, it's combined, but it's a t-shirt. So not a jersey this year, but a white and black with the Cardinals on the lightsaber. And what I appreciate about the Cardinals is they do not have one of the birds on the lightsaber. He is on, one bird is on the hilt and the other one is on the Cardinal logo. So they are not burning their little feet. Well, it's, an, cool. it's an attention to detail that I appreciate. Well, how cool is that? 
Well, if you're not going anywhere this weekend, you can immerse yourself into the ET, the extraterrestrial marathon on the sci-fi channel Saturday, because tomorrow is our June 11th is the 40th anniversary of ET, the extraterrestrial coming out Spielberg's masterpiece. And uh, the sci-fi channel is going to have it noon, 2.30, 5 and 7.30 tomorrow. If you don't have cable, you can rent it on all the platforms, Prime, Google Play, whatever, if you want to watch it. Or you can wait till November 4th and see it on the Omnimax at the Science Center, one of their first Fridays. Now, are are these, is the Sci-Fi Channel going to have the guns version or the radios version i bet they have the radios version because they spielberg changed it he pulled a george lucas and took the guns out of the hands saying those those agents wouldn't have guns with children yes they would but they they all have radios now instead of weapons drawn whoa did you not know that lynn no i think i heard that but i think i just um ignored it yeah so yes so. that's i i would almost guarantee that the version that sci-fi is going to have on they're carrying radios instead of drawn firearms aha uh-huh. well lynn where can they find you this weekend this weekend uh they'll find me at guido's tonight i love guido's Having, i Don't. know well my daughter-in-law maria she lived in spain for a few years so Say and hi to Miguel. I will. And she hasn't been at a restaurant on the hill. So tell, we're combined. Tell Miguel, the owner and proprietor of Guido's, that I cannot wait to go fishing with him in two weeks. All right. I will tell him that. I'm in his I'm in his boat. And uh, he provides he provides all the things that I have no idea what to use. And Miguel's Miguel's the best. I love him. Oh, that's awesome, Carl. Well, I just love their food. And so so I love we, the people that run it. And you you might see his parents there too. Okay. Well, you know what? Are they the the elderly? Yes. Uh, elderly. Okay. I know them because when I first started going there back in the early the late 90s, early 2000, mm-hmm. um, he was always there. And I remember one time my son Tim and I were coming out of there and Bob Costas was there with a menu ordering to go and i said hello mr costas and tim was so happy that i just walked away because he thought he was going to start talking to him and embarrass him he was like oh mom i'm so glad you didn't stop (laughs) it's like oh god because the kids used to hate when i would stop and talk to people and they would feel so but miguel has owned it since then he's his parents just hang around they're great and um the person that you're bringing with you that lived in spain she can she can speak her Spanish to Miguel and she he will love that. He loves speaking Spanish. There are actually a lot of Spanish speakers at the place. So uh, other than being at Guido's with my friend Miguel, where where can we find you, Lynn? You can find me at poplifestl.com. You can find me on KTRS radio every Thursday night, Lynn Benhouse. Miller Furniture presents Lynn Van House Goes to the Movies and also in the Webster Kirkwood Times. And guess what? what? I get to review the Karate Kid, the musical in the Webster Kirkwood Times, the first theater review in the Webster Kirkwood Times. 
Excellent. Well, you can find me on Instagram and Twitter at underscore Carl, the intern. You can find me on the Mark Cox morning show Monday through Friday. I ripped Jurassic Park, a new one this morning. And you can find me on Second Amendment Radio and the Great Outdoors on KMOX on Sundays, uh, either before or after the baseball game. So I'll be there. We're, we're everywhere, Carl. We are everywhere. Lynn, have a good weekend. We'll talk next week. You too. Where so we talk long, about everybody. Lightyear. Stay we'll talk, safe. We'll yes. talk about a good movie, Light Years, next week. <laughs> Stay safe, everyone. Be well. Keep cool.